following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. In, in uh, Manitou Springs, Colorado, of all places, they celebrate um, Epiphany with a um, fruitcake toss, <laughs> kind of celebrating chucking off Christmas and moving on. Uh, that, that's not actually, though, the real meaning of Epiphany, <laughs> just so you know that, as fun as that would be. Um, Epiphany comes from the Greek word, which just simply means to, for something to appear, to come on the scene. And it really uh, is, is a celebration of Jesus appearing. Uh, the reason, though, that it's not focused at Christmas per se, it comes with the, the, usually with the remembering of the, the wise men, the magi coming to visit Jesus, is that um, Jesus' birth and the narratives that we've been looking at in Luke really point to Jesus coming to Israel and uh, and, the, and coming as the king of the Jews. But the Magi represent Jesus really appearing to the world, that he didn't come only for Israel, but he came for the world. And in the Magi who come from a foreign country as Gentiles, um, their, uh, the revelation of Jesus to them is, is, is called Epiphany. And so on this day, uh, this Sunday, we celebrate uh, the wise men coming to see Jesus. So let's begin by reading... Uh, from Matthew chapter 2, and we're just going to read the first 11 verses, um, and we're actually going to kind of jump from here to another scripture, but let's begin here. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from the east, eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod, Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel." Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, we, we know this well, and, and uh, our, you know, we, we, we know about the Magi coming from the east and uh, just the miracle of being led by the star, uh, bringing these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But uh, maybe a more important question that, that the readers of Matthew and Matthew's audience would have understood a lot better than we do is really who were these guys and why were they, uh, why were they looking for Jesus? 
Where were they looking after and why did they come in search of him? It's significant that they say uh, when they arrive in, in, in Jerusalem, they're asking around and they want to know not just where uh, this, this important person is, but they specifically want to know where the king of the Jews is born. Uh, and of course, that's a threat to Herod, who was the existing reigning king of Judea. Um, and, and of course, we know his part of the story. Uh, who were these guys and what was their mission? Um, you know, you see the pictures and the nice little pictures on the cards, these, these you know, royally robed, kind of kingly looking guys with their little treasure chests of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Seemed like mostly just kind of tottering old elderly guys who just decided to go on a baitiao, you know, just on a trip, following the star. Um, they were much more than that, right? They were really on a peace envoy, a peace mission. And uh, the reason they were looking for the king of the Jews is because they were on a diplomatic mission to establish peaceful relationships with this newborn king. Um, well, why would you do that? Uh, and why would you seek to honor this king? Well, we, we know that they were led by the star, and certainly the star had indicated to them both the time and, and the place of this king's birth. Uh, and whatever you think of astrology and however this all worked for them, I don't know, but God used it to reveal to them the time of Jesus' birth. But the star didn't give them the whole picture. Right? They didn't look up at the stars and ascertain the significance or important of this particular king of the Jews that motivated them to go seek him. And to, to get the picture of really what's going on here, you've got to understand a little bit more of, of who, what Israel was at this time in history. Um, you know, they're, they're looking for the king of the Jews. They're on a peace mission. And who do you make peace with? I mean, who would you send an envoy like this, a diplomatic envoy, to? Well, you would send it to somebody you saw as a threat to your, your existence. Right? That's what this kind of diplomacy is about. Uh, to this day, world governments do this, right? We have people who are ambassadors, who are diplomatic envoys to other countries. Um, but they go from one powerful country to a more powerful country, or from a lesser country to a greater country. Um, for example, in, in our world today, uh, you know, there, are, there are governments and powers that are to be feared, and if you are a lesser nation, you in some degree must bow to these. So in Asia, the giant here would be China, right? China. Nobody, nobody ignores China. Because there's, there's reasons for that, right? Everybody needs China. Everybody, in a sense, fears China. Everybody will establish good diplomatic relations with China, no matter how small you are. In fact, the smaller you are, the more you need the friendship of the big guy. Well, here these guys come, and, and most likely these guys would have been the only kingdom to the east that would have been of note, that would have been in size, would have been the kingdom of Parthia. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the significance of the Parthians. Uh, it would have been the succession of, of ancient Babylon. Uh, it was it was a, a military power, and as, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it had invaded Israel about 40 years before Jesus' birth. Uh, the Romans weren't real happy about that, and the Romans uh, fought the Parthians and, and were able to wrestle back Judea. Well, uh, during that time, the Parthians had put their own king, 
Romans came along, got rid of that king, put Herod back in. Right? In the midst of all this struggle, Judea is not the superpower. Right? It is this little pond that's getting in this tug-of-war back and forth between these much larger world powers. Why would the, the, the country, the kingdom of Parthia, send a diplomatic, diplomatic envoy to Judea, to the king of the Jews? Okay, it really makes no sense. Because at this point in history, Judea is nothing. And the king of Judea, Herod, nobody saw Herod as a great world ruler. Everybody knew he was a governor under Rome who had no power and authority on his own. If you want to make peace with a great nation, you go to Rome, you don't go to Judea, right? Because it's not even a country at this point, much less a kingdom or an empire. So why do these guys come looking for the king of the Jews? Why do they come bearing such elaborate and expensive gifts to Jesus, who's, uh, you know, maybe royalty, but to a second-rate, low-class, overrun kingdom that has no power or influence in the world? Well, to answer that question, um, we kind of have to make some assumptions that Scripture doesn't really say. So take this all with a grain of salt. Okay, the Bible doesn't say this, but most scholars would agree that these guys were very aware of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, we, we get the idea that sometimes in the old times, because they didn't have uh, print, because they didn't have email, because they didn't have television, that, that news did not travel around these countries. But that's just not true. We know from uh, throughout Scripture that, that news traveled, and these countries were quite aware of what was going on in, in other countries. Uh, for example, when Moses left Egypt long before he got to, to Canaan, the Canaanites knew all about everything that had happened with Pharaoh. Right? So, so news traveled in those days, a little slower, but it traveled just like it does now. Uh, the Parthians had invaded and lived in Judea. While they were there, it is very certain that they... I mean, these are, these are wise men. What do wise men do? Well, they read books. Okay, These are, these are scholars. These are... Guys that hang out and spend too much time in the library, okay? They're nerds, right? Um, and if, you're, if you hang out too much in the library, you're not a nerd, I'm sure. I'm sure. These guys, they, they read books. So certainly when the Parthians were there, they would have been very interested in the prophecies of the Old Testament. But more significantly, uh, it's, it's very likely that these guys had been influenced by the writings of Daniel, uh, when, when the Israelites were taken captive to Babylon, uh, they lived for 70 years in the kingdom of Parthia. And uh, one of the most influential Israelites who came to uh, have great status in Babylon at the, uh, over several dynasties, actually, was Daniel. And he wrote, uh, and his writings certainly would have been preserved in the libraries of Babylon and would have been of great interest to these guys. In fact, Daniel was in the class of these guys, right? You remember the stories in Daniel? He was one of these guys. One of the high-up court magi uh, counselors and advisors. So it, it's, uh, most scholars are quite confident that, that, that these wise men were influenced and guided to, uh, to see the worth and significance and weight of Jesus through some of these prophecies. So what I'd like to do this morning is take just a few minutes and, and look back in the book of Daniel, um, to give us an idea of what it was 
in the mind of these guys that they were looking for when they went looking for the king of the Jews. Right? Uh, the whole second half of Daniel actually uh, talks about all this. We're not going to go through the whole second half of Daniel. Uh, we are going to look at part of chapter 7. Uh, so if you have your Bibles and want to follow along, I'm not going to read through all of it, but we'll take kind of section by section. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision, and he records the vision, and it starts out like this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. And the dream starts off, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. don't have a lot of time to explain this, but in biblical times, in Daniel's time, the sea uh, was not where you went to vacation at the beach. Okay? Their vision of the sea was not Phuket. Okay, our vision, you know, we like the beach. For them, the ocean and the beach was a place of chaos and terror. And a lot of their myths, uh, in most of their myths actually, the evil beings that were the enemies of man and the enemies of the world came out of the ocean. Uh, also in Genesis chapter 1, before God brought order to the earth, it says that it was covered in water and it was chaos. Right? There was darkness and chaos. So the, the ocean represents in Daniel's vision bad things. It's the source or origin out of which evil comes into the world. Uh, and the dream goes on. He says, And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. These are happy creatures. Right? Happy creatures. Eat up. Six. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great teeth of iron. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. These are lovely creatures, right? Uh, starts off not too bad. A lion, wings of an eagle... Um, that actually is a symbol of, of a lot of countries and flags and emblems, you know. Uh, not so bad, but um, each, each of these is pictured in ways that is terrifying, devouring, ripping, shredding, destroying everything in its path. Um, who are they? Well, in verse 16 and 17, uh, we get some interpretation. Uh, Daniel says, I approached one of those who stood by there, one of the angels, and asked him, truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of things. He said, these, uh, are four, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Uh, there's a lot of discussion, and, and if you've had Bible classes, if you've read books on prophecy, um, at this point, what would normally happen is we would go off into about a two-hour-long discussion of who these four beasts are. I'm not going to do that, right? In fact, I'm going to take the approach and the perspective, really, of Daniel. 
Daniel is standing uh, kind of on the brink of a new year like we are. One of the things that happens in a new year is we our focus typically gets turned futureward, right? We kind of killed off the past year and we're starting new. And so we look into the future. What does this year hold for us? What does the future bring? What are my goals? What's my purpose? What do I hope will happen in, in the future to come? Well, that's really where Daniel was. And for him, this vision was futureward. It was looking into the future. And for him, it, it wouldn't matter if, he, if, if we said to him, well, the fourth kingdom is Rome. Okay, he didn't know what Rome was. Right? Imagine, imagine us uh, given a vision of what's going to happen 500 years from now. Okay, I could tell you the name of the kingdoms, but it would mean nothing to you because the world will be quite a different place in 500 years. It's still here, right? Um, so for Daniel, he wasn't really worried about who these specific kingdoms were. And so I want, I want to skip over that and really talk to what the point of the vision is as Daniel would have perceived it. Okay, so put ourselves back in Daniel's shoe, uh, his place. And he's looking to the future and he sees four unfolding kingdoms, four kings that will be coming in the future. And none of them are exactly happy people, right? They're not the kind of people we would want to invite over for dinner, right? And if you did, uh, it would be hopefully to lock them in your dungeon, right? These are mean, bad people. Um, what are some of the characteristics of these beasts? Um, well, in general, all of them have this in common. They are all powerful kings or kingdoms, and their power is turned to destructive, evil ends. Right? Uh, all of these kingdoms have in common that they devour and destroy. Right? Um, they, they each are arrogantly defiant of God. So they claim for themselves power, and that power is very much set in opposition to God's sovereign power over the world. They want to be God, and they want to establish a kingdom that is very much in opposition and out from underneath God's dominion. And they see themselves as that way. Uh, they oppose God's rule, and they attack those who serve God. And we'll see that a little bit more as the vision unfolds. Uh, but at the same time, they are under God's control. And uh, they're described in terms that they don't have absolute sovereign power. Um, the, the lion becomes, uh, the lion with the, the, the wings of an eagle, it says its wings are plucked off and it's made to stand up, not of its own accord, but it's made to stand up and be more human. And it's given the mind of a man. So this first beast actually becomes a bit more human. Starts off horrible, but gets reformed. And actually ends somewhat human-like. But it's not something he does on his own. It's done for him. He's made to, to transform this way. Uh, the others are commanded and ordered, right? There's some sense in which there is a, a higher power governing them. So they are not with unlimited power. They are, uh, in, in spite of their resistance, they are under a greater power. Um, the other observation that we can take just in general as we look at these four beasts is this. Um, each kingdom gets progressively worse. Right? The first one starts out as a, as a lion, gets, gets a bit reformed, actually ends almost human. Right? Um, second and third uh, start as an animal, end as an animal. 
and pretty much just become beastly, right? The fourth one is so horrible, it can't even take the shape of an animal. It is, I think if Daniel were writing today, he would have said the fourth beast was a transformer, right? With teeth of iron and, and claws of bronze, right? There's nothing even living about it. It's, it's a destructive, inhuman, lifeless machine of destruction, right? So you see the cycle. It starts off a lion that almost gets to be a man, almost human, and gradually each cycle, each, each trip around the, the track, it's downward, less human, more like a beast. And then finally it's so beastly, it's not even like an animal anymore. Um, if, we, if we took time to describe who these were, we could pick out kingdoms and we could do that. We're not going to do that, as I said. But, but know this. Uh, the world has had its, its monsters who have ruled and its empires who have been destructive. Uh, some examples of that, certainly uh, Rome was one of those monsters. Uh, Nero was one of those horrible, arrogant leaders who lived in absolute defiance of God, uh, who would light up his palace courtyard at night by taking Christians and impaling them to the wall and burning them. Okay? That is pretty horrific, pretty beastly, right? Uh, and it gets worse. And in, in, in the modern day, we've had... Uh, you know, we've had our Genghis Khan who brought Mongol hordes and brutally devastated Asia from Korea to Hungary. Uh, in, in even more recent times, we've had our Hitler and our Stalin and our Pol Pot who have killed millions, right? Um, Daniel is seeing portrayed here kings and rulers and governments who are horrible, horrible, right? um, Now, it doesn't mean, uh, and he's not saying here that every... Government is like this, right? There are also good governments. And, and Scripture is clear that God has put governments in place. He's appointed kings and kingdoms. Right? So the, the message here is not that we should freak out at all government and become um, anti-governmental, live in caves, set up, you know, arm ourselves to the teeth to fight, you know, the world powers. Okay, that's not, okay, we're told in Scripture to uh, submit to... Uh, governments to submit to the worldly authorities, but but Daniel's clear that these worldly authorities are given by God power, and oftentimes they abuse that power, and that behind it is not godliness, even though God's given them power. But ultimately, behind governments, they come out of the sea of evil and wicked. They are under the influence and dom- dom- domain of evil. And ultimately, their goals are not God's goals. They are contrary to God's goals. And that's, that's, that's what these leaders are like. And, and the picture here is of mankind not evolving, right? Uh, whatever you think about the science of evolution and how that plays into creation, um, the Bible does not paint a picture of man moving upward and it progressing, Okay. Throughout Scripture, the, the, the biblical picture of man is one who's on a downward spiral, not an upward evolution. Right? Uh, do we really think that way, though? I think even though we may not subscribe to the theories, scientific theories of evolution, we may 
buy into the cultural idea that man has been on this upward trajectory of progression and advancing. And the reason for that is that uh, man has gotten in some ways smarter in that we understand better the mechanics of the universe. We know now about chemistry and biology and physics in ways that people 5,000 years ago did not. Right? So we, we, we get this sense that we're a lot smarter than they were. And in some ways that's true because we, we do know. We, we know how to... So, here, so here's the deal. We know how to kill each other with nuclear weapons instead of beating each other to death with sticks. Okay? But is that really evolution? Is that really the advancement and progress of humanity? That we're just more efficient at killing each other off now. Um, See, this vision tells us that man is on a downward spiral. Uh, For something to evolve, it has to increase and grow in wisdom and in godliness. That's the biblical vision of progress, of advance, of moving upward. But the picture is of society as a whole and of governments as a whole moving downward, right? Moving downward. Things will not get better in the future. They will ultimately get worse. Uh, and, and, and whatever you think about who these kingdoms are, the reality is this. For sure, the last kingdom has not yet come. The arrogant little horn of the ten horns still hasn't shown up yet. So here's the deal. History's had its monsters, but the future also has its monsters. Okay? The future has its monsters. Now, this is something we love to talk about, right? (laughs) Those of you who are super optimists do not want to hear this. Um, Those of you who are pessimists, you know, you're already so depressed by the whole thing. You already want to talk about it, right? Um, the future, and I don't know about 2014 or 2015 or 2020, I don't know when, but there are still some horrible monsters who will come along, some small and local. There will be one, though, that is universal, whose rule, it says, he will take over the world, and he will be a monster, and he will be out to destroy everything that God has made. Well, if the vision ended there, this would just be really bad news and sad and depressing. But thankfully, God doesn't do that. And uh, this first vision is very much from a worldly, earthly perspective. Um, God, in his grace, pulls back the curtain and he gives Daniel a different perspective, the perspective of heaven. And let's look at that perspective. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Um, So while all this is going on on earth, right... There's another scene in heaven, and there's a different perspective. And it's important that we see what's going on behind the scenes, that we see the perspective of world events, not only from earth, but from heaven. And uh, the, the perspective is much different. It is calm, it is orderly, and there is true, absolute power. And the picture that's described of heaven is one of a courtroom, And the throne that's set up is a judgment seat. 
And the Ancient of Days comes and he sits upon it to judge the world and to judge these, these, these kingdoms and these empires and these rulers. Um, it's a heavenly courtroom. The, 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 the throne is set and it says that his throne is on fire. Uh, it's, it's, it's got wheels of fire. Fire is flowing out from the throne. Okay, it's burning and blazing. And the, uh, the Ancient of Days comes and his clothing is white. It's a picture of his integrity and his righteousness. He's a judge who is perfect in his justice. His hair is white. It's a picture of the wisdom of his age. And how old is he? Well, he's called the Ancient of Days. Right? Have any of you been called ancient yet? Okay. Probably for us, it's not a real flattering thing if a child says, well, you're ancient, right? It means you're pretty old. Well, ancient of days means really, really old. He is without beginning. His days are without number. He's ancient of days. And he comes and in, in order and in calmness, he sits on his throne. And he is not in a panic. He is not freaking out over all that's going on on the earth. He comes and it says, the books are brought to him and the books are opened. Well, what are these books? Well, we don't know exactly, but there's two good possibilities, or maybe both. One is that it's a ledger book, kind of a bank book, an accounting. And in it is kept a ledger of the deeds of men and uh, their consequences, right? It is, it is keeping track of the sins uh, against God, and the, the debt that is racking up, um, and as God judges justly, he, he looks at that bank book and he knows what each person owes him in terms of moral righteousness, in terms of their sin against him. So that would be one meaning. As God judges, he looks at the evil actions of these men, these rulers, these empires of each of us, and he judges according to what is written in the book. Uh, it's also possible, though, that these books... Uh, have recorded in them the decrees of God. And in Daniel's day, there was this idea that everything had been, everything from beginning of the story to the end of the story was already recorded and written down through God's decrees. And everything would go exactly according to what he had decreed would happen. So if that's the sense that it means that God is opening up his book and he is going to, carry out the plans that he has decreed, that he has set things in, in place from the beginning to the end, and he has determined what will happen each step of the way, and he opens to carry out and execute those plans. And his plans involve certain judgment and destruction and the rising and falling of these nations. So we get this picture of God who is, uh, who is very much in control, who is sovereign, who is not panicked and who's in control in spite of how out of control it seems on earth. And it says in verse 11, he says, I looked then because the sound of the great words that the little horn was speaking, okay, one of these kingdoms, one of these rulers, right, and he's speaking blasphemies against God and he's attacking uh, God's people. And it says, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Okay, so here's the deal. Here's the picture. From the heavenly perspective, the judge sits down. He opens the book. The bad guys die. End of story. Right? It's over. It's done. Right? It is not a big deal. There's no great battle. 
God doesn't, you know, wring his hands about how he's going to do this. They just die, right? Don't you love that? The bad guys just die. And the ones who don't die, it says, for the rest of them, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. They are stripped of their power and authority. That's the heavenly perspective of things. We know and serve and follow a God who is in control. And when he wants it to end, when he uh, decides these evil tyrants have had enough, that they've devoured enough flesh, they die. He ends their life. He ends their kingdoms. He ends their power. He ends their rule. It's just that simple. Um, God is in control. Um, this heavenly vision continues a bit more beyond this, though. Uh, and this is where we get back to the, the, the Magi. Don't forget the Magi, okay? We get to the Magi right here. Verse 13, I also saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, there's two amazing descriptions or titles given to this one who comes before the Ancient of Days. The first one is he is called the, the Cloud Rider. Okay, it doesn't maybe say that in your translation, but it's literally what it is. One who comes riding on the clouds. And that's a very significant phrase. Now for us, not one we use often, you know. Uh, I, I doubt that anybody said, yeah, I rode the clouds here this morning, right? Even though literally we do ride the clouds, right? That's probably how you got from wherever you live to Asia. You got on an airplane. You, we are cloud riders. But in, in Daniel's day, you know, if we, if we got Zab back in time, we told him, yeah, I rode here on the clouds, you would be instantly made a god, okay? Because in their myths and in, their, in, their, in, in the Babylonian um, worship of, of idols, right, there are lots of gods, a pantheon of gods. But the chief god of all, the one who had power and ruled over all the other gods, was the one who did what? Who rode the clouds, right? The supreme god was described as the cloud rider, right? So when, when Daniel uses this very Babylonian picture of their own pagan gods to describe the one who comes as the cloud rider, he is saying of this one, he comes as absolute supreme power. Right? He comes as God of gods, as the one who is Lord over everything. That's how the Babylonians, how, and even Daniel would have understood it. It's how we are to understand it. This one who comes is supremely God coming to the Ancient of Days, right? So you're getting a picture of the triune God, right? But also, he's not just the cloud rider. He is what? Coming like as the Son of Man. Incredible picture of Jesus, right? Um, if he had said he came, uh, he came the Son of Man, it would have literally mean he it was a human, right? But he uses the phrase, he comes like the Son of Man. It means he's not quite human, but he's very much human. He appears as a human, but he is somehow something more. And even though Daniel, I'm sure, had no idea what he was painting here, it's an incredible picture of the incarnation. Jesus comes as the cloud rider, Son of Man. 
And in fact, throughout the Gospels, and we'll see this over and over in, in Luke, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. And it absolutely comes from, from this passage in Daniel chapter 7. Right? When he says, I am the Son of Man, he doesn't just mean that I was born to Mary and Joseph. He means I am the cloud rider who comes before the Ancient of Days and has been given uh, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve me and that my dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and my kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. That's what Jesus claimed when he uses that title, Son of Man. That's why they crucified him. That's why Herod was terrified of him. And that's who the Magi were seeking, right? They weren't seeking just another King Herod. Uh, If it's true that they read this, which I believe it is, they come because they have seen in the stars uh, the arrival, the appearing of the Son of Man, the Cloud Rider, right? And it means the world is going to change forever. And this was, for the Parthians, this was especially good news because they just got beat by the Romans, right? They were already kind of sour grapes about this whole thing. Uh, Had they won, maybe they wouldn't have been so eager for Jesus to come, right? But they're the losers. And they want to see Rome destroyed, right? They welcome Cloud Rider Son of Man, who's who's going to beat these guys, right? Who's going to overthrow this monster called Rome, uh, of course, they didn't understand some of the things that had to happen in the meantime, like the cross and the resurrection and the whole ascension to heaven thing, right? But that's who they were looking for. And, and it makes more sense now that they send a delegation of peace. If you believe this is the one who will set up an eternal, everlasting kingdom that will never end, you want to be friends with this guy, right? You want to make peace with this guy from the day of his birth. You want to be on his side. And they come worshiping this king, right? Who will make the world right. Well, the story goes on, and we we don't have time to finish the rest of the chapter, but there's a great battle. Um, uh, uh, The vision turns back to earth, and um, this great horn makes war with the saints. and it doesn't go well for the saints. Uh, in fact, it says that he prevails against them for a season. But finally, uh, Cloud Rider, son of man, comes back. He overthrows that ruler. He sets up his eternal kingdom. And it ends with this, this truth. It says, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. It also says that the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion, that is the the evil ruler, his dominion will be taken away, consumed and destroyed by fire to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to not the king, but the people of the saints of the Most High. It's interesting uh, it it, it ends with the same terminology, terminology that's given to the Son of Man, is now used to describe you and I. And it's an incredible picture of our uh, our being in Christ. We died with Christ. Scripture says we were buried with Him. It says that we will ascend and we are now seated 
on the right hand of God together with him. When Jesus returns and he uh, overthrows evil once and for all, we will rule with him. We will reign with him and it will be our kingdom as it is his. Uh, let me just briefly apply this in a couple of quick ways. Um, I think this passage reminds us that we need to put on our glasses, right? I, I am, well, I used to be um, nearsighted. I always get them confused. I, was, I used to be nearsighted, which means I could only see things about this close. From here on, I couldn't see anything, right? Uh, of course, now I've gotten old, and not only am I nearsighted, but I'm also farsighted. I can't, I can't even see things here anymore, right? I need glasses for both. <laughs> the joys of getting old. Um, we need to be wearing our glasses to do life well. And what this passage teaches us or, or suggests to us is that it's very easy to be nearsighted. And by that I mean we see only what's going on right in front of us from the world's perspective. And honestly, sometimes it is hard here, right? Um, and there's two ways that we can go about this. One is we can see only the problems of this world and get super discouraged and feel quite hopeless and want to give up. Uh, have you ever been there? Maybe you're there now. Right? You just feel like, ah, you know, uh, this war keeps going on and, and the evil one is prevailing against me and I'm losing and I'm dying and I'm just discouraged, right? Well, if you're in that place, you need to put on the glasses and see past what's right in front of us to the heavenly perspective of God ruling. God who is sovereign. God who will not let anything happen apart from his plan. Right? And whatever's going on in our lives that is difficult and hard, God has some purpose in it. Right? He has some purpose. Uh, at the same time, we can have this approach. Uh, we can see all the problems of this world and be convinced that we can turn it around, right? This is like the more optimistic people who are like, yeah, we can beat this, right? Um, if we can just get the right Christian official elected, you know, if we can just overthrow the existing government and put in our own Christian government, uh, people who lobby and fight for their own political agenda, that that's going to be the solution to life's problems. It, it comes from this mindset that thinks man really can move forward and advance, right? It is this theory of evolution that's crept into our thinking that we think, uh, like a good humanist, man is basically good, and if we, just, if we just work harder, we can fix this, right? Well, you, um, it doesn't work that way, right? It just doesn't work that way. Scripture is very clear that man is on a downward cycle, and you're not going to fix it. Uh, so we need to... Uh, we need to be more realistic about our goals, right? Um, if we fail to take in this heavenly perspective and see that God is in control, uh, one of two things will happen. One, we will get super discouraged. Secondly, we will waste our time fighting battles we can never win. Now, am I saying that we shouldn't be involved in government and we should not fight? Now, absolutely we should. Uh, if we can overthrow governments for the sake of God's kingdom, go for it, right? Um, I'm just telling you, Daniel says that the enemy prevails against us. You know what that means? It means we, it means we mostly lose, right? Uh, not completely lose, right? It definitely means that we don't beat this guy, right? Now, in some places and in some times and in some seasons, 
we will, we will win. We will see governments influenced for God's kingdom. But that is not ever going to be the final solution. Right? If, you're, if you believe that, and I've heard this, you know, in my lifetime I'm going to see human, traffic end, human trafficking ended. And we're going to beat this. You're not. You're not. And if you make that a goal for 2014, you're just going to be discouraged. Right? Uh, now, does it mean we shouldn't be fighting to rescue people who are enslaved? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does it mean we should not be pressuring governments to change? Absolutely. But know the truth, right? We have to see with eyes that see beyond here and now. There is only one who is sovereign, and that is God. There is only one who, in the end, will defeat and overthrow the wicked, evil governments of the world, and that is Jesus, when he comes in the end and ends it, right? In the meantime, guess what? Life's not going to be easy for us, right? He will prevail against us, it says. Um, Now, I don't know that the final ruler is in power yet, which means it'll only get worse, right? And if we think we're being prevailed against now, the good news is this is nothing. (laughs) It gets worse, right? Yay! And that's our future, right? Now, we could be blessed enough to bypass it ourselves and hope it falls on our grandchildren. For me, that's not particularly good news either, right? Um, what do you do with that? Well, you've got to keep the perspective that God is in control, right? The enemy may have a heavy hand against us, but God will limit it. And his purpose for our life and his purpose for his kingdom will not fail, right? Um, We will not overthrow the world, but we will bring in God's kingdom. And it is coming, right? And as you proclaim Christ, as you preach the gospel, as you see people's lives turn to him. See, that's the answer. Like the Magi, they didn't come hoping to overthrow Judea. They came to worship the king. They knew their only hope was in their relationship to this king being on his side. Right? That's our answer. And, and the only way we're going to win is to be bringing people who are outside his kingdom, who are opposed to Jesus, to him, where they worship and serve him. Because in the end, you will either be in his kingdom or you will be destroyed by him. Right? So our mission should not be to reform the government, uh, ultimately, to reform the world. Our mission should be to bring people to Christ and to await his coming kingdom. Last thing, um, it says that the, um, it says, I looked, the horn made war with the saints, and he, he prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And he shall speak uh, words against the Most High, and he will wear out the saints. He will wear out the saints. He will not beat us, but what he can do is wear us out. Right? And you know, Scripture says, do not grow weary in doing good. Um, the, the call for us is not to, to be victorious over evil. That's God's business. The call for us is to not wear out, is to endure, is to keep that heavenly perspective where we know we just need to wait. And here's the deal. 2014 came. It is a new year. And every new year, what, what New Year's does for me more than anything is it reminds me how quickly time is going by. 
Did any of you remember Y2K? <laughs> yeah, that was 14 years ago now. 14. I mean, there's, 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 there's a number of people here who weren't even born yet, right? <laughs> Time is going by, right? It's clipping by. And it's not going to be that long, right? It's not going to be that long. And it's done. The kingdom comes. And we rule and we win, right? Forever. And we'd be a part of a kingdom that will never be destroyed and will never be um, under the oppression of evil again, right? Hold on to that hope. Let's pray. Lord God, that is indeed just an incredible hope and promise. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.